If you would like to buy your own copy of Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Tara T. Green is Professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in the US. She's author of several books, including See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era, and editor of two books, one of which includes From the Plantation to the Prison, African American Confinement Literature. Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson has received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Booklist. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown has praised the book as a brilliant analysis. So who was Alice Dunbar Nelson? Born in New Orleans in 1875, she would go on to become activist, writer, educator and contributor to the Harlem Renaissance. She navigated the hostile country as a black bisexual woman, subjected to systemic racism and sexism, as well as impositions of respectability. More intimately, she navigated an abusive marriage to the well-known writer Paul Lawrence Dunbar. In this episode with Tara T. Green, we discuss how Alice Dunbar Nelson found ways to not only survive, but thrive in a world and marriage that were fundamentally against her. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wei-Ming Kam. And I'm Liz Morris, your other host. And today we're speaking to Tara T. Green, the author of Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar-Nelson. It is a really like acclaimed book. Booklist gave it a starred review and said it was a fascinating biography of a fascinating woman. Publishers Weekly also gave it a starred review and said it was a definitive look. And it was called Brilliant by Jericho Brown, the Pulitzer Prize winner. Welcome to the show, Tara. We're so excited to be speaking with you. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And let's get into it. So first of all, just to lay out some context for our listeners who may not know much about Alice Dunbar Nelson, who is she and why did you choose to write about her? Well, Alice Dunbar Nelson was born in New Orleans in 1875 and she died in Philadelphia in 1935. During her lifetime, she was an educator. She was a local activist who became very prominent on the national scene. She was a trailblazing member of the Black Women's Club. And those women focus locally on improving the conditions of people of African descent. And so they focus on education, making sure that families have resources. And she was also very, very, very active on the political scene. She was a suffragist. And after women got the right to vote, she continued in politics. She was mostly active with the Republican Party. And how did I meet her? Because I am from the New Orleans area and I was introduced to one of her short fiction pieces because, of course, she's mostly known as a fiction writer and a poet. But I didn't even know that when I met her at Dillard University in New Orleans. And so there were questions that were in my mind that would continue until I found the answer to those questions and 
that resulted in the book. I mean, it's great that you bring up New Orleans because that leads us to our next question. You and Alice both spent formative parts of your lives in New Orleans. Could you talk a little bit about the significance of place in Alice's early years? Yeah, well, Alice Dunbar Nelson introduced to me a New Orleans that I obviously did not know because she was writing about a New Orleans of the 1800s. And as I would do the research, I would learn just how historical she was. So she was sort of relegated to this this style of local color, which kind of didn't mean very much to me when I was introduced to that technique of writing. She wasn't just writing about New Orleans or New Orleans wasn't just a sort of backdrop, but she also was critiquing historical traditions that were common in New Orleans that had an impact on working class individuals and especially women. And of course, I did not know that at the time because nobody told me that. That was not a part of my introduction. I don't recall that being a part of the discussion that we had in class. I would come to understand that. But what grabbed me was her vivid descriptions of New Orleans, of these areas that exist but don't exist because they have been changed and the the neighborhoods don't look the same. But she gave me this visual idea and experience that was really what stayed with me until the day that I decided that I wanted to know more. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to be transported back in time by people throughout the years. Absolutely. And she does that well as a writer. You can't stay where you are. You have to walk a journey with her characters. I really love it when, especially in cities like uh, where fiction is set, like you can really feel the sense of like place. I really look forward to, I think at some point soon, like getting to know like Alice Dunbar Nelson's like fiction writing because of this. Let's talk a little bit about Alice's first marriage to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, a fairly significant like figure in her life. Um, So could we just like talk about marriage and also about like her relationship to him even after after the marriage was dissolved, as it were. Yeah, well, she meets him. She's around 20 years old. And what's fascinating to me about this period is before we have apps, dating apps, where people may meet a future spouse, these folks were writing these letters, these beautiful letters. And if we're lucky, we still have those letters. And so we have available to us the letters Some of the letters that they wrote to each other, but most certainly letters that she wrote to him. And so we're able to, at least I certainly was able to sort of understand the complexities of that marriage. And it's not actually just the marriage. It's the very first time that they correspond. And she has this, (laughs) I just think it's so funny that he writes to her and she delays in her reply. And she says that (laughs) that there was a fire that delayed her from writing back to him sooner. (laughs) Which is probably not true at all, but it sort of marks the drama of their life together. And she certainly was a dramatic person. In fact, she wrote plays. And so she was the biggest character in her own life, of course. And 
The marriage would eventually happen by elopement. There's sexual abuse that happens prior to that. And we see the pressures of society and also how men have a certain kind of power within that society that women cannot resist or push through. And she has to make certain decisions that lead to the marriage, but that do not keep her in that marriage, which is why she leaves several years before he actually dies. And so the marriage itself becomes obviously very important to her, one, because of his last name, Dunbar. Paul Lawrence Dunbar was a troubled man, an abusive man, but he was also a very respected man as an American writer. So he wasn't just respected amongst Black people for his talent as a writer. He wrote in several different genres as well. But he was also respected amongst white critics of literature of his time. And so the fact that she has his last name of Dunbar, she's very smart because she keeps that name for a variety of reasons. One, because people after his death, still regard her as his widow. But secondly, she's also able to get the royalties from his work after his death. So it's a very smart business move on her part to remain married to him. Yeah, it's unfortunate that such an abusive marriage obviously left that impact on her, but it almost gave her, like launched her into recognition in its own way her work almost was maybe taken more or raised more attention to her work as a result. Well, it certainly did open doors. And so when we see her introduced to give a public presentation of some kind, and it could be her very popular an evening with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, she says in her writing to him that she could not stand his dialect poetry because people always saw him as a dialect poet And she felt like that was the negative way of looking at Black people. But that he was such a beautiful poet, she wanted to present the side of him that she really saw as being his kind of true talent. And so in many ways, after his death, she was the one that made sure that people remembered who Paul Lawrence Dunbar was as a complicated and talented writer. So she's very important in that regard. But it also, of course, puts her in the front because she's not always talking about Paul Lawrence. Sometimes she's presenting her own work or she became known as an orator who was known for her political stance in certain areas, whether it was women's right to vote or demanding that politicians be held accountable for getting women or black men's vote. Yeah, I was struck by how in her later life in the activism, some occasionally she would basically use his name, perhaps not use his name, but she would bring him up in speeches and so on very occasionally. And it, that's something that struck me as if he became like a thing that she realized she could use politically and continue to do so. Shifting to marriage a little more generally, marriage during Alice's time, of course, could have been extremely restrictive for women. And in many cases, it did limit her opportunities. I remember when she married Paul Orange Dunbar, having to give up her teaching career at the time. But she was also able to maintain a career as a teacher, writer, and activist during the majority of her marriages. 
So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how she almost leveraged marriage as an opportunity to pursue her interest and how her interest outside of the home might have conflicted with respectability politics of being a married woman. Yeah, that was really kind of the point to having these restrictions on women being able to work outside of the home. So while she was married to Paul Lawrence, when she moved from New York, where she was really developing her career there. She was so proud, for example, that she had been chosen to teach at a school for Jewish students. And she wrote to him about the experience of what she learned from being immersed in that culture. But when she left, she knew that she was not going to be able to work because in D.C., if you were married, you weren't allowed to teach And that just shows how the laws favored men over women. That also shows in a letter that she writes that when she leaves him for a brief time, she has to find a man that she trusts, which is her friend's husband, to actually cash her check because of restrictions that women have, even to the access of their own money at the time. She had been working for several years by the time she actually married Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And to give up her independence as a woman who had grown up in a woman-centered family because her father was probably not present, we do not see a presence of him in the archive, that must have really been scary. I can't imagine the anxiety that she felt She would eventually, I think, kind of move into it a little bit more in terms of some level of comfort because it did open up doors for her to be able to concentrate on writing. She and Paul then were sharing a home along with his mother. So that had its own challenges as well, as we see in the letters. But what we see there, though, is her being in the presence of this respected, renowned writer who was giving her advice. So there was one thing that was between the two from the very beginning, which is that he respected her as a writer and she respected him as a writer. And that was a kind of kernel of beauty in their marriage. But when she left him, she went straight back into teaching and she would remain a teacher, an English teacher for most of her life. And in fact, that was what opened doors is that she was Mrs. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. She also had graduate education. She would go back to Cornell, but she had gone to Columbia and University of Pennsylvania to get more education. She was always thinking about teaching. She would write journals on teaching. She would write articles about teaching. She would give presentations and speeches about education. So teaching was really important to her because it was also a part of her activism work to advance the race. In what other ways did moving perhaps out of the, just in terms of like respectability politics and marriage, in what other ways did respectability politics shape, but also perhaps restrict Alice's life? Well, she was a queer woman. She was married to men, but she also loved women. And this was not a part of her life that she could make public. 
one of the early archivists of her work, actually the early archivist of her work is Akasha Hall. And Dr. Hall wrote a short essay about her being invited by her niece, Pauline Young, to come and look at her papers that she had jammed into parts of her little cottage there in in Wilmington, Delaware. And once Dr. Hall goes through these diaries, she sees the evidence that Alice was in relationship with women, intimate relationship. It's not something that's so buried that you can't tell what it is. It's it's fairly obvious in her diaries as well as in her letters to from Edwina Cruz. And she mentions it to her and Pauline Young is in shock because she did not know. And here this affair with a woman that she knew very well because she was the principal of her school, Edwina Cruz, she would come over all the time. And in fact, she was the maid of honor in Dunbar Nelson's wedding. And so... um, (laughs) This was going on right in front of people's faces, but they had no idea. So, you know, it speaks to same-sex relationships being visible, but being invisible because of people's inability to accept that these relationships are actually present and that Black people are engaging in them. So as far as I'm concerned, I feel as though she kind of redefined what respectability looks like because she still met whatever the standards were. She did marry men. She loved men. And she writes about, for example, her sexual liaisons with Paul Lawrence Dunbar and his not meeting her needs as well as her relationship with her third husband, where she says something like they Christianed their new furniture. So she met respectability from a sort of heterosexual perspective as she also enjoyed her relationships with women. Again, I really believe that she redefines what that means. Absolutely. I also can't imagine inviting your female lover as to be the maid of honor at your second wedding. The, uh, sorry, the know, drama it, in this. Yeah, it, it is the drama of it, which is why I find her to be such a fascinating subject to research and to write about. I don't, I don't know how they got away with some of this stuff. Well, maintaining the topic of queerness, how did the intersections of her identity as a queer Black artist shape her activism? And can you talk a little about her work as an educator, abolitionist, and writer? Yeah, well, all of those things were part of who she was. So she was a queer woman. She was a woman who was an activist. What we learned through the archive is that some of her lovers were women who were part of the Black Club Women's Movement. And so when these women get together, you never really know what the details are about the getting together, right? You don't know all of the details about why certain decisions were made or agenda items become the platform because of these 
bedroom relationships that can most certainly affect how groups of people may vote or the platforms that people may push forward. You just simply do not know how those intimate relationships affect the agenda. But I would certainly say that they do affect the agenda because we know how these things work now. So that it would not have been any different then. But these are the kinds of things that we have to work with on a kind of conjecture because nobody's going to write that my lover and I were on the committee together and we decided over dinner that we, <laughs> that we were going to push forward this agenda item. These are not things that we're going to find in an archive. We just have to understand that they would have had some sort of influence over how business was conducted. And so, you know, she was an activist always. She was an activist in her writing She was an activist as a teacher. She was an activist as a suffragist. She married in her third husband, Robert Nelson, a man who was also very politically minded and would get a political appointment, which is why they ended up in Philadelphia. And I think that he was a great partner for her because he was not one that ever tried to keep her from doing the kinds of things that she wanted and needed to do as a woman who, as she got older and became more confident in herself and in some ways less confident in herself as a writer, that he did not try to stand in her way of traveling, of the kinds of writing that she would do or the presentations that she would make. He was a great partner for her. And so we see things kind of coming as full circle as I think that they can for a woman of her time. 